Okay, uh, moving then as quickly as possible into our subject matter for today. Uh, we begin a series of lectures on various aspects of 20th century formalism, a big word. Uh, at the end of our run through uh, the varieties of 20th century formalism, I hope it doesn't seem uh, quite as big and that its many meanings, uh, but finite number of meanings, have been made clear to you. Uh, in the meantime, uh, this aspect of our subject uh, is, that is to say, what we're taking up this week is as much really, you remember in the first lecture I said there's a difference between the history of criticism and theory of literature. Uh, one difference being history of criticism has a great deal to do with literary evaluation, that is to say, why do we care about literature and how can we find means uh, of saying that it's good or not good. Um, this is an aspect of thought concerning literature that tends to fall out of literary theory but not out of the materials that we're reading this week. You can see that when Wimsatt and Beardsley talk about the success of the poem, they understand the whole critical enterprise, including its theoretical underpinnings, the question, what is a poem, the question, how should we best read it, that the whole enterprise is still geared toward uh, literary evaluation. And, that's, and that makes that this subject matter that we'll be discussing this week, as I say, as much a part of the history of criticism as it is of literary theory. We're going to be reading it with a theory spin, uh, that is to say we're going to focus on the question what a poem is and the question what criteria should we invoke in order to read it uh, for the best and correctly, uh, but there are other ways of approaching this material. Uh, in any case, uh, Wimsatt, Beardsley uh, is ac was actually a philosopher who taught at Temple University, a good friend of his, uh, in the book in which this, uh, the essay, The Intentional Fallacy, appeared, a book called The Verbal Icon. Uh, Wimsatt collaborated with Monroe Beardsley on three essays, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, so we try to remember to say Wimsatt and Beardsley, even though it is, wi it is Wimsatt who taught at Yale, that in itself needn't be significant except that the new critics, the school of critics to which he belonged, have always been identified with Yale and indeed consolidated a kind of teaching method and attitude toward literature which constituted the first wave, uh, first of two waves of involvement in literary theory uh, which amount to the Yale English and Comparative Literature Department's claims to fame. Uh, the new critics, um, many, of the, many of those figures who belonged to the new critics did much of their important work before they arrived at Yale. Uh, others never were at Yale, and yet at the same time it's a movement closely associated with this, with this institution. When I arrived at Yale, uh, Wimsatt was still teaching, Cleanth Brooks was still teaching, uh, and so I feel a kind of per personal continuity uh, with these figures. Uh, and understand, as, as, as we all will more fully later on, the way in which uh, the style and emphasis on, style of close reading that evolved uh, within the new criticism um, 
meaningfully and importantly left its mark on much subsequent criticism and theory that hasn't, uh, in fact, always acknowledged the new criticism, perhaps to the extent that it might have. Um, what I'll say, because much of this should be reserved for next time when I talk about Clint Brooks and return to the whole subject of the new criticism and the way in which it's viewed historically, so much of it can be reserved for next time. But what I do want to say now is this. If it weren't for the new critics, none of you probably would have been able to sit patiently through any of your middle or high school English classes. When Clint Brooks and Robert Penn Warren published a book called Understanding Poetry, first published in 1939 and then subsequently reissued again and again and again as it swept the country, suddenly school teachers had a way of keeping kids in the classroom for 50 minutes. <laughs> Close reading, the idea that you could take a text and do things with it. That the, that the interpretation of a text wasn't just a matter of saying, oh yes, it's about this, and isn't it beautiful, reciting the text, emoting over it, enthusing about it, uh, and then looking around for something else to say. It was no longer a question of doing that. It was a question of constructing an elaborate, formal edifice to which everybody con could contribute. Students got excited about it. They saw certain patterns or certain ways of elaborating patterns that the teachers were talking about. And lo and behold, the 50 minutes was over, and everybody had had a pretty good time. Uh, this, this had never happened in an English class before. <laughs> Seriously, you're English majors because of the new criticism. Uh, I admit, especially if you went to private school, this, 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 this way of teaching did not perhaps quite so much, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, permeate public, sc public school literature teaching. Uh, but it was simply, as a result of understanding poetry, uh, the way to go. It took time. If you had more than 50 minutes, you could actually make ample use of it. Uh, T.S. Eliot, who was in many ways associated with the New Criticism, some of, some one of its intellectual forebears, nevertheless took a somewhat dim view of it and called it lemon squeezer criticism. You know, but, the, but what this meant is you know, it takes time. You've got to squeeze absolutely everything out of it. Uh, and so it was ideal from the standpoint of teaching, and it was, it seems to me, also wonderfully galvanizing intellectually because, because it really did make people think. Look how intricate what I thought was simple turns out to be. Uh, the new criticism, uh, incontestably and without rival, created an atmosphere in which it was okay to notice that things were a little more difficult than they'd been supposed to be. And this in itself uh, was extraordinarily uh, useful and constructive, not just for sub subsequent literary theory, I think, but for the way in which English teaching actually can help people think better. Uh, all of this the new criticism had a great deal to do with, um, and when I talk next time about the way in which it's been vilified for the last 40 or 50 years, uh, naturally I will have this uh, in, in the back of my mind. So in any case, in any case, where did this preoccupation with form, because we're beginning to think about the way in which theory can preoccupy, but not necessarily, but can preoccupy itself with form, 
Where does it come from? Well, needless to say, I'm about to say it goes back to the beginning. You know, when Plato writes his Republic and devotes Book Ten, as I'm sure most of you know, to an argument uh, in effect banishing the poets from the ideal Republic, part of the argument is that poets are terrible imitators. They imitate reality as badly as they possibly can. Uh, now it's not they're three times removed from the ideal forms of objects in reality. They're a hopeless mess. They get everything wrong. Uh, they think that a stick refracted in the water is therefore a crooked stick. They're subject to every conceivable kind of illusion, not to be trusted, and Socrates calls them liars. Okay, now when Aristotle, when Aristotle writes his Poetics, he does so, and, and, and this is true, and, 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 and rewards and rewards scrutiny if one thinks carefully about the Poetics. He does so very consciously in refutation of Plato's arguments in the Republic. And one, perhaps the keystone of this reputation, refutation is simply this. Plato says poets imitate badly. Aristotle says this is a category mistake because poets don't imitate reality. Poets don't imitate, says Aristotle, things as they are. They imitate things as they should be. In other words, the business of poets is to organize, to bring form to bear on the messiness of reality, and in so doing, to construct not exactly, not an alternate reality in the sense that it has nothing to do with the real world, that is to say, it doesn't mention the real world or it somehow or another invents, you know, human beings made out of chocolate or something like that, but idealizes the elements existing in the real world such that its object is something other than reality as such. And this is really the origin of formalism. Aristotle is considered uh, the ancestor of the varying sorts of thought about form, and it's this move, this move that he makes in the Poetics uh, that engenders this possibility. Now, turning to your sheet, in the early, early modern period, the poet and courtier Sir Philip Sidney wrote an elegant, really wonderfully written defense of poetry in one edition called The Apology for Poesy. And in this edition, he develops, while actually a fervent admirer of Plato, he nevertheless develops this idea of Aristotle with, uh, with uh, remarkable uh, rhetorical ingenuity, uh, and I think very impressively lays out the case that Aristotle first makes. Uh, first passage on your sheet. Sidney's talking about the various kinds of discourse, divinity, hymnody, science, philosophy, history, in other words, all the ways in which you can contribute to uh, human betterment human welfare. And he says all but one of them there is, is, is a serving science, that is to say, it is subservient to the natural world. Its, its importance is that it refers to that world. First sentence of your, hand, uh, of your passage, there is no art but one delivered to mankind that hath not the works of nature for his principal object. This, by the way, although it's not exactly a work of nature, this, by the way, is why 
even that which is incontestably better than secular poetry, hymnody, and also divine knowledge, theology, that's why even these fields, which are the supreme fields, are also serving sciences. They are subservient to an idea that they have to express, which is the idea of God. Right? And God is real. Nobody, I mean, we're, we're sort of, there's, there's no sense that we're making God up in this kind of discourse. Sidney is a, devout, uh, a, a, a devoutly religious person, uh, and there is no sen- there, there's no semblance of doubt uh, in his attitude. Uh, and yet he, he is saying something very special about the poet, who is somewhere in between divinity and the other sorts of discourse with which poetry is traditionally in rivalry, science, philosophy, and history. And he says, this is what's unique about poetry. Only the poet, disdaining to be tied to any such subjection, subjection in other words to things as they are, disdaining to be tied to any such subjection, lifted up with the vigor of his own invention, doth grow in effect another nature. He nothing affirms and therefore never lieth. In other words, Plato is wrong. The poet is not a liar because he's not talking about anything that's verifiable or falsifiable. He is simply talking about the parameters of the world he has brought into being. Sidney thinks of it as a, co- as a kind of magic. Uh, he invokes, for example, the science of the pseudoscience of alchemy. The, the poet, he says, ranges freely within the zodiac of his own wit. He also invokes the pseudoscience, I'm sorry, I meant to say astrology. Uh, he also invokes the pseudoscience of alchemy when he says that the poet inhabits a brazen world. And of this brazen brass, of this brazen world, he makes a golden world. In other words, poetry is transformational. In representing not things as they are, but things as they should be, it transforms. Reality. All right, so this is an argument which, in outline, uh, once again justifies the idea of literature as form, as that which brings form to bear on the chaos and messiness of the real. Now, I, it would be, I don't mean to say things just stood as Sidney said they were until you get to Kant, a great deal happens, but an aspect of Kant's famous Copernican revolution in the history of philosophy is his ideas about aesthetics and the beautiful and about the special faculty that he believes uh, has to do with and mediates our aesthetic understanding of things, a faculty which he calls the judgment. So that in the Critique of Judgment, 1790, he outlines a philosophy of the beautiful and of the means whereby the judgment makes judgments of the beautiful. He does a great deal else in it, but I'm isolating this strand, which is what's relevant to what we're talking about. In many ways, Kant, without knowing anything about Sidney, nevertheless follows from Sidney, particularly in this, as you'll see. I'm going to look sort of with some care at these passages so all will become clear, but particularly in this. Sidney 
and, and I didn't exactly quote the passage in which Sidney does this, but I urged you to believe that he does, Sidney actually ranks poetry somewhere between divinity and the other sciences. In other words, poetry is not the supreme thing that a, that, that a person can do. Sidney believed this so much, in fact, that when he knew himself to be dying, having been mortally wounded in a battle, he ordered that all of his own poems be burned. I mean, he had, you know, from the standpoint of a devout person, he had no doubt that poetry was inferior to divinity. Now, in a way, that's what Kant's saying too. In the passages you'll read, you'll see that it's that the point is not that art and the judgment of the beautiful is the supreme thing that humanity can be engaged with. The point is only that it has a special characteristic that nothing else has. That's the point that this whole tradition is trying to make. So this is the way Kant puts it, turning first to the second passage. The pleasant and the good both have a reference to the faculty of desire. The pleasant is the way in which our appetency, our sensuous faculty, which Kant calls the understanding, by the way, understands things. Things are either pleasant or unpleasant. The good, on the contrary, is the way in which our cognitive and moral faculty, which Kant calls the reason, understands things. Things are either to be approved of or not to be approved of. But in each case, as Kant argues, they have a reference to the faculty of desire. I want, I don't want, I approve, I disapprove. And they bring with them the former, that is to say the pleasant, a satisfaction pathologically conditioned, the latter a pure practical, purposeful satisfaction which is determined not merely by the representation of the object, that is to say by the, by the fact that the represented object exists for me, right? not merely by the representation of the object, but also by the represented connection of the subject with the existence of the object. In other words, by the way in which I want it or don't want it, approve of it or don't approve of it. My subjectivity, in other words, determines my attitude toward it. Whereas Kant, what Kant is saying is that my attitude of that which simply stands before us as what is neither pleasant nor good, but is rather something else, isn't, doesn't exist for me. It exists in and for itself. The next passage. Taste is the faculty of judging of an object or a method of representing it by an entirely disinterested satisfaction or dissatisfaction. In other words, yeah, I still like it or don't like it, but my liking has nothing to do either with desire or with approval, moral, political, as the case may be. I just like it, or I just don't like it, according to principles that can be understood as arising from the faculty of judgment and not from the faculty of the understanding, which is appetitive, and the faculty of reason, which is moral. So with that said, uh, perhaps just to add to that the fourth passage, uh, beauty is the form of the purposiveness of an object so far as it is perceived in it without any representation of a purpose. Whoa, you say, well, listen, 
<laughs> Kant makes a distinction between the purposive and the purposeful. What is the distinction? The purposeful is the purpose of the object in practical terms. What can it do? What can it do for me? How does it go to work in the world? What is its function among other objects? What bearing does it have on, in particular, my life? But the purposiveness of the object is the way in which it is sufficient unto itself. It has its own purpose, which is not a purpose that has any bearing necessarily on anything else. It has, in other words, an internal coherence. It has a dynamism of parts that is strictly with reference to its own existence. It is a form. It is a form, and that form, because we can see it has structure, because we can see it has organization and complexity, is purposive. That is to say, it, has, it, 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 it manifests its self-sufficiency. So that's Kant's famous distinction between the purposive, which is the uh, organization of an aesthetic object, and the purposeful, which is the organization of any object insofar as it's, it, 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 it goes to work in the world or for us. An aesthetic object can be purposeful. That is to say, we can view it as purposeful. Uh, I see a naked body, uh, which the art historians call a nude. Uh, I don't accept that it's merely a nude. I want it, or I disapprove of it, um, and lo and behold, it's no longer aesthetic. I'll come back to that in a moment, but I hope you can see that that is a distinction between the purposive and the purposeful. Now, um, just in order to reprise these important distinctions, uh, uh, I want to turn to a passage uh, from in Samuel Coleridge, who is, at least on this occasion, a disciple of Kant and is, I think, usefully paraphrasing the arguments of Kant that we've just been engaged in. Fifth passage on your sheet. The beautiful, says Coleridge, is at once distinguished both from the agreeable, which is beneath it, and notice the sort of stationing of the beautiful as Sidney stations it between what's, what's beneath it and what's above it, from the agreeable which is beneath it and from the good which is above it. For both these necessarily have an interest attached to them. Both act on the will and excite a desire for the actual existence of the image or idea contemplated, while the sense of beauty rests gratified in the mere contemplation or intuition, regardless whether it be a fictitious Apollo or a real Antinous. In other words, the judgment of beauty does not depend on the existence of the object for its satisfaction. Now, <coughs> Oscar Wilde, ever the wag, and a person who put more good literary theory in ways that didn't seem like literary theory at all, uh, perhaps in the entire history of thinking about these subjects, says in the famous series of aphorisms which, which constitute his preface to the picture of Dorian Gray, he concludes this series of aphorisms by winking at us and saying, all art is quite useless. 
I hope that after reading these passages and enduring the explication of them that you've just heard, you can immediately see what wild means by saying all art is quite useless. He's appropriating a term of opprobrium, you know, in the utilitarian tradition, oh my goodness, that something would be useless, right? He's appropriating a term of opprobrium and pointing out that it is an extraordinarily unique thing about art that it's useless. In other words, that it appeals to no merely appetitive or other form of subjective interest. We don't have to have an interest in it in the sense of owning part of a company. We don't have to have an interest in it in order to appreciate it. In other words, we can be objective about it. We can distance ourselves from our, from our subjective wants and needs and likes and dislikes. And we can coexist with it in a happy and constructive way that is good for both of us. Because if we recognize that there are things in the world which have intrinsic value and importance and what we call beauty, and yet are not the things that we covet or wish to banish, we recognize in ourselves the capacity for disinterestedness. We recognize in ourselves a virtue which is considered to be the cornerstone of many systems of moral understanding. To realize that we're not interested in everything and merely for that reason take a view of things, but that there are things that we don't have to have that kind of interest in and can nevertheless recognize as self-sufficient and valuable is important, the suggestion is, Wilde's suggestion, but I think also Kant's suggestion before him, is important for our recognition of our own value. And by the same token, all this harping on the autonomy of art, that is to say the self-sufficiency of, of art, the way in which it's not dependent on anything, as, as Sidney says, the way in which it's not a serving science, existing merely to represent things other than itself, right? the way in which this is possible for art is also, as our own capacity to be disinterested is, a way of acknowledging that freedom exists, that I am free, that things are free. Things are free from my instrumental interest in them. So that, in general, what's implicit in this view of art and this view of human judgment and what makes it so important in the history of thought is that, once again, and this is not the first time we've brought this up in, in, in these lectures and won't be the last, is that, once again, it's a way of recognizing that in addition to all the other things that we are, some of them wonderful, in addition to all of that, we are also free. There is in us, at least, an element that is free, independent, serving nothing, autonomous. 
And this idea of our freedom and by implication of the freedom of other things from our instrumental interests is what sustains the formalist tradition and against various kinds of criticism and objection that we'll be taking up uh, in turn as the case arises, sustains and keeps bringing back into the history of thought on these subjects the notion that form, simply for its own sake, as, this, as, as, as the notorious aestheticist movement at the end of the 19th century put it, is valuable. All right, now, John Crow Ransom, who was never at Yale but is, was, is nevertheless uh, um, one of the founders or first members of a self-identified school of figures who called themselves the New Critics, um, published a book called The New Criticism. <laughs> and, that's where, uh, and that's where the term, the New Critics, comes from. You may have noticed in your Wimsat essay that there's a footnote to somebody named Joel Spingarn who wrote an essay called The New Criticism in 1924. Not to worry, that has nothing to do with the New Criticism. That just means criticism which is recent. <laughs> uh, different matter altogether. By the same token, uh, there is a, there, the, the work of Roland Bach and his, some of his contemporaries, uh, Poulet whom I mentioned, uh, Jean Starobinsky and others, uh, was called in the French press La Nouvelle Critique, uh, and that too, you know, then is uh, a, an instance of the new criticism being used as a term, but that too has nothing to do with our subject. Uh, the new critics, the American new critics as they're sometimes identified, uh, were a school, and I, and I use that advisedly because they're self-identified as a group, were a school of people who evolved uh, this idea of the independent status, uh, um, Ransom calls it uh, a discrete ontological object, the independent status of the work of art uh, and the means whereby it can be appreciated as independent in all of its, of all of it, in all of its complexity. Uh, and the first foray, our first foray into the thinking of this school will be our reading of Wimsatt and Beardsley's uh, uh, The Intentional Fallacy, which I'll get to in a minute, but simply as a reprise, uh, take a look at the two passages from Ransom which complete what's on your sheet uh, and which um, uh, I think you can see create a link between the sort of thinking you've encountered in reading The Intentional Fallacy and the tradition that I've been trying to describe. Passage 7 ought to be completely transparent to you now because it is simply a paraphrase of the passages I've given you from Kant and Coleridge. The experience, says Ransom, the experience called beauty is beyond the powerful ethical will precisely as it is beyond the animal passion. And indeed, these last two are competitive and coordinate. In other words, what they have in common with each other, ethical will and animal passion, is that they're both grounded in interest. Right? That's, I mean, that's the point of you know, Sir Kenneth Clark's word, the nude. You know? I mean, we have for the naked human being as viewed both by 
the appetites and by moral reason as a common term from the standpoint both of what Kant calls the understanding and from what Kant calls the reason, the, the, the expression naked body is just fine. But if, we've got, but if we do believe there is another category, the aesthetic viewed by an independent faculty called the judgment, we need another word. When we're looking, I mean, you know, I mean, modern painters like Philip Perlstein and Lucien Freud would strongly disagree, but in a way that's the point. When we're looking at a painting of a naked body, we don't say, oh, that's a naked body, we say that's a nude. And that, and, and, and that, distinction, that distinction is what, uh, as it were, bears out the implicit way, the semi-conscious way in which all of us acknowledge there to be a category that we call the aesthetic judgment. On the other hand, a lot of people think it's, it's all hokum. Uh, and, and in, fact, in, in fact, the predominant view in the 20th century has been that there's no such thing as disinterestedness, uh, that whatever we're looking at, uh, we, form, we have an interest in uh, and form views of, and that, um, and that this Kantian moment of of, of dispassionate or disinterested contemplation is what uh, the early 20th century critic I.A. Richards called a phantom aesthetic state. Uh, and so the predominant view is of this kind. But, you know, I mean, just to do it justice in passing, I mean, there is a certain sense, is there not, in which we suddenly find ourselves, without meaning to and without being simply victims of sort of cultural tyranny, we suddenly find ourselves standing in front of something, clasping our hands, tilting our head, and feeling somehow or another different from the way we feel when we typically look at things. Uh, and that too, you know, is an intuitive way of saying, yeah, something like this however rigorously we can define it or defend it, something like this does seem to go on in our minds at certain kinds of moments of experience. You know, we just feel differently looking at a certain work of art than we feel, uh, or a certain landscape, let's say, than we feel looking at other sorts of things. Maybe we don't know why. Maybe we doubt that the difference is, is absolute in the way that Kant wants to insist it is. But nevertheless, we have in tendency feelings of this kind, and we should acknowledge them because, again, uh, at least in terms of its of of, of a of a of a uh, uh, weak understanding of these positions, it it does tend to justify them. At least at least it explains to us why people can have had such thoughts. Okay, Wimsatt. Wimsatt, right off the, I keep saying Wimsatt again, it's Wimsatt and Beardsley, but I already explained you know, how, how that is. Um, Wimsatt, right off the bat, attacks what he calls the romantic understanding of literature. Now, what does he mean by romantic? It's the attitude which supposes that a poem, and that's Wimsatt's privileged, privileged word, which I'll try to explain that a poem is an expression, that is to say, is the expression of some passion or profound genius working its way into a form, but that the important thing is the expression. 
This much, by the way, Winsat has in common with Gadamer, because you know Gadamer doesn't talk much about authors either. And Gadamer is interested in what he calls meaning, the subject matter, die Sache. Right? He's not interested in, in, in your sort of expression of that meaning or my expression of that meaning. He's, he's, he's interested in the way in which a reader can come to terms with a meaning. And that much, as I say, despite the profoundly different nature of their projects, uh, Winsett and Gadamer have in common. So a poem is not an expression, but an independent object with a self-contained meaning. And if this meaning is not self-evident to the attentive reader, then we don't judge the poem a success. This is where evaluation comes in. The success or failure of a poem, of, of a poem depends on the realization of meaning. It doesn't depend on our going to the archive finding out what the author said in his letters about it, finding out what he told his friends, what he told the newspapers. It doesn't involve any of that. If the meaning is not clear in the poem, we judge the poem a failure. We don't refer. We have no reason to refer. If we respect the autonomy of the poem as such, we don't refer. We don't appeal to an authorial intention. Hence, on page 811, left-hand column, about a third of the way down, the design or intention of the author is neither available nor desirable as a standard for judging the success of a work of literary art. So that, and, 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 and it follows from this that um, even a short poem, even a short lyric poem, and here you could see Winsat following Foucault. I mean, he's obviously not following, anticipating Foucault, and again, they have nothing to do with each other, but there is this overlap. Even a short poem doesn't really have an author. It has a speaker, a figure speaking in the poem that needs to be understood dramatically, that is to say, as though the poem were one of Browning's or T.S. Eliot's dramatic monologues. In other words, so, so that the speaker of any poem on Wimsatt's view is a speaker endowed with a certain character, a certain viewpoint, a certain argument to be put forward, and that in order and, and that our concern about the speaker has to be a concern within the poem of the way in which this character is elaborated and not uh, reinforced somehow by biographical reference to that which is not the speaker but the author standing back there somewhere behind the poem. Now, why focus on the poem? Notice that we never hear about literature. We never, hear, we never even hear about poetry. The object of attention for an analysis of this kind is the poem. Well, the poem is, as John, as John Donne puts it, a little world made cunningly. It's a microcosm. It is a distillation or quintessence. It is a model, in other words, for the way in which literature can be understood as world-making. Not a representation, again, of things as they are, but
but of things as they should be. Whereas things whereas they should be is not whereby things as they should be is not necessarily an ideal, but rather that which is formal, that which is organized, that which has a coherence and makes sense self-sufficiently and within itself. That's why poem, the poem, the lyric poem is privileged among the forms of literary discourse in the New Criticism. All literature is by implication a poem, <laughs> but the poem is the privileged site of analysis whereby this broader statement can be made to seem reasonable, hence the emphasis on, on the poem. Um, the, ad the absence of the Romantic word poetry uh, is therefore not insignificant. Poetry is that which just sort of spills out of me. It's my spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Never mind that, uh, the New Criticism in isn't interested in spontaneous overflows of powerful feelings. Wimsat has his little joke about drinking a pint of beer, taking a walk, you know. I mean, the, so the, the New Criticism just isn't interested in those sorts of spontaneous overflow. Uh, sorry, I, I, I won't go there. Um, but in, 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 in any case, uh, he, goes, he goes on. He goes on to say, all right, if we're focused on the work of art in and of itself, on the poem, we obviously, in thinking about what it means, need to come to terms with three kinds of evidence. That is to say, some things have a bearing on what it means and some things don't. What does have a bearing is language, that is to say, words in the public domain which all of us share and which we can uh, study in order to come to terms with the exact meaning of the poem. Uh, a certain word, and this is of course what kept you in your high school classes for so long, a certain word has five or six different meanings. Uh, the New Criticism delights in showing how all five or six of those meanings do have some bearing on the meaning of the poem. That's all legitimate evidence. That is what one uses to build up the structure of the interpretation of the poem. What is not relevant is what I've mentioned already, uh, what the author said about the poem uh, in letters uh, to friends, to newspapers, and so on. Uh, that has no relevance. Then Wimsatt acknowledges that there's a sort of messy third category of evidence which has to do with language and is therefore legitimate to a point but also has to do with the author's idiosyncrasies, that is to say the way that author in particular used language, certain coterie words, uh, a simply a private misunderstanding of certain words. Uh, uh, you know, you got to know when you're reading Whitman what he means by camarado. You know, it's not exactly <laughs> what, what the rest of us typically mean uh, when we, when we when, well, we don't use that word exactly, but, it, but it's <laughs> what, we, what we typically mean when we speak of comrades or comradeship. Uh, there is, in, in other words, the word is loaded in ways that Wimsatt would probably acknowledge need to be taken into account if we're going to understand what Whitman is up to. Now this is very tricky, and he spends the rest of his essay talking about the murky boundaries between evidence, type of evidence two, which is out of play, and type of evidence three, which may be in play but has to be dealt with uh, in a gingerly and careful way. Um, and, but I'm more interested, actually, in a footnote which arises 
from this argument about the idiosyncratic nature of language as a particular author may use it. Because the footnote says, you know what, that's just one consideration we bring to bear on the function of language in a poem. This is this footnote, number 11, bottom of page 814 over to 815, is just about as devastating and counterintuitive a pronouncement as is made anywhere in our entire syllabus. I mean, you know, the, the, the new critics, what you would think you would find, uh, the most, the most earth-shattering pronouncement that, one, that anybody could ever possibly make in the new critics, well, look at this footnote. And the history of words after a poem is written may contribute meanings which, if relevant to the original pattern, should not be ruled out by a scruple about intention. That is bold. The great creator raised his plastic arm. Right? Everybody knows Akenstein didn't mean poly didn't mean polymers. But now we're all into cyberborgs, and we're, you know, we, 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 we take all of this very seriously. And, it, and it, in a way, it's a tribute to the great creator, and also an acknowledgment of the fact that the great creator lives in the eternal moment. He's not subject to history. I mean, the great creator knew in the 18th century that someday plastic would mean polymer, right? And, and, and obviously, that's, that's one, of the, one of the divine attributes. Therefore, if the great creator chooses to raise his prosthetic limb, that is simply a way of understanding what it is like to be everything omnipotent and omniscient in the eternal moment. In other words, if you take Wimsatt's 11th footnote seriously, that is a perfectly legitimate way not to ironically undermine Akenside's line, but actually to reinforce it and to give it a kind of formal richness which it does not otherwise have. Uh, I realize that I'm out of time, and so I'll begin the next lecture by talking about a poem of Yeats called Lapis Lazuli, written in 1935, uh, in which he talks about the way in which people who build up things that have been destroyed are always gay. And of course, and of course Nietzsche doesn't mean, we say, invoking intention. Nietzsche doesn't mean that they're always gay. Uh, he is using the English translation of the German word fröhlich from, from uh, uh, Nietzsche's The Gay Science. Uh, he is uh, a, a, an astute and, and careful reader of Nietzsche and in some ways elaborating on what Nietzsche says in that book in his poem Lapis Lazuli. But beginning of the next lecture, we will do the same thing with the word gay that we've just done with the word plastic, and then we will go ahead uh, and we will consider the essay of Cleanth Brooks and other aspects of the new criticism.